Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hi, everyone. Today's story has been on my heart and mind for quite some time. It's a case that reminds us that some career fields in the military are more tight-knit than others. Maybe it's the secrecy behind what they do. Everything is secret squirrely, so bonding over shared experiences makes friendships stronger. But it's also the type of camaraderie with ups and downs. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. But what happens when you're forced to keep a secret and the other person flips on you? And now you are forced to live in prison for the rest of your life. Yikes. Before I dive into today's story, I wanted to ask you for a huge favor. If you love this show, rate and review it. It truly does help me grow the show and it always brightens my day to read what you have to say. If you leave a review this month, consider it a military murder birthday gift as we will be celebrating four glorious years on Veterans Day since I pressed record back in 2019. So go ahead, bless me with a review wherever you're listening to this show. With that, join me today as I tell you the devastating story of Jennifer Evans. Now, let's dig in. Today's story takes us all the way back to 1995, but before we get there, let me take you back to 1974. Jennifer Evans was born on May 7, 1974 in Atlanta, Georgia, to her parents Al and Dolores. Jennifer was an only child and her parents considered her every parent's dream. She was an all-American girl. In high school, she was a cheerleader and she was also part of the gymnastics team until she was forced to have back surgery to treat scoliosis. It took several months for Jennifer to recover, and when she finally did, she was no longer competitive. But that didn't stop Jennifer. Instead, she took up coaching gymnastics, where she could help younger children enjoy the sport. Jennifer graduated from Tucker High School in 1992. She received an academic scholarship and enrolled at Emory University, where she majored in pre-med. It was her lifelong dream to become a pediatrician. For the next several years, Jennifer crushed it at college. While many go wild and crazy the first two years, Jennifer managed to get and stay on the dean's list with near-perfect grades. And when she didn't have her nose in her books, she volunteered at a local children's hospital. She did let loose every now and then, playing sports and going dancing with her friends. And during the summer of 1995, which was a summer before she began her senior year, Jennifer showed true heart by taking care of her sick grandmothers. The first week that summer, Jennifer, who was then 21 years old, she took care of her maternal grandmother who lived with Jennifer's parents. Jennifer did everything for her grandma. She was like her home health aide. She bathed her, fed her, walked with her. During the week when she wasn't taking care of her maternal grandmother, Jennifer would visit her paternal grandmother who was at the hospital. From everything that I read, Jennifer was just a very considerate person. By mid-June of 1995, Jennifer had lined up a trip with a few friends to visit Virginia Beach. 
After she got back from this trip, she was going to start coaching a youth gymnastics league. So the trip was going to be a nice break in the go, go, go of Jennifer's life. Jennifer and her friends arrived in Virginia Beach on June 17th, 1995. The trip was supposed to last a week and she was there with her two friends, Andrea and Michelle. Once the ladies arrived at their cottage, they relaxed and decided to have a girls night in. While deciding on a movie, they ultimately picked Jennifer's favorite, The Little Mermaid. The Lion King was said to be her favorite, favorite movie, but that night Ariel won out on Simba. The following day was Father's Day. So as soon as Jennifer woke up or sometime that morning, she rang her dad to wish him a happy Father's Day. The ladies hung around town during the day, but by night they decided to do some partying. By 11 p.m., the ladies found themselves at a bar slash club called The Bayou. There was a band playing on stage and the dance floor was hopping. Jennifer, Andrea, and Michelle danced and drank a little bit, and I'm sure that they got hit on by a ton of guys. But there was one man in particular who really had his eyes set on Jennifer. The man introduced himself to Jennifer as Dusty. He was tall and blonde and very, very handsome. He told Jennifer that he was a Navy SEAL and was stationed at Fort AP Hill. Now, I will say that some reports indicate that this sailor was stationed at Fort AP Hill. Others say that he was stationed at Little Creek. So I'm just going to leave it there. So Dusty was hanging out with his buddy Brown and they loved that spot and they were becoming regulars. Jennifer might have been impressed with this Dusty guy's looks or maybe the fact that he was a Navy SEAL. But nonetheless, she was impressed. She was impressed enough to spend an hour chatting with him at the club. Dusty was there with that guy Brown and Jennifer met Brown, but very briefly. Anyway, at around midnight, Jennifer's friends wanted to head out, but Jennifer didn't want to leave. Jennifer's friends decided to let her continue talking to this guy for about an hour. But by the time Jennifer realized like, hey, my friends aren't having fun anymore, she realized it was time to leave. The bar wasn't closed yet and Dusty really didn't want to stop talking to Jennifer. So he followed the ladies, not in a stalkerish kind of way, just kind of escorting them out of the bar. He escorted them to the parking lot. The ladies all piled into their car as Dusty stayed at the window and told Jennifer that he really wished she could stay. He was like, why don't you let me drive you home? Jennifer's friends were like, hell no, we gotta go. But Jennifer did seem to be having fun. Eventually not wanting to seem like a bunch of grandmas, Andrea and Michelle told Jennifer that she could stay at the bar until 2 a.m., but that they were going to leave and they'd be back for her. Yes, Jennifer thought. The bar closed at 2 a.m., so this seemed like a really fair compromise. The two friends were actually just heading to get some food and some coffee because they were wiped. Meanwhile, back at the bayou, Jennifer and Dusty returned inside to keep talking. Andrea and Michelle returned to the bayou right before 2 a.m., but they didn't see Jennifer. They thought it was odd. I mean, they were a little bit early, but, you know, okay, they waited and waited. When 2 a.m. came and went, Jennifer's friends became even more concerned. And remember, the bar closed at 2 a.m., so it was pretty much clearing out. When 3 a.m. came and went, and then 4 a.m. came and went, the ladies were code red concerned for their friends. Okay, 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 I know what y'all are thinking. Maybe Jennifer ran off with Dusty for a little bit. But that was so unlike her. Her friends were very concerned. They raced back to the cottage that they had rented, thinking maybe Dusty dropped her off there. But nope, there was no sign of Jennifer. Within hours, Jennifer's friends reported Jennifer Evans missing to the police, but they were told to wait. Maybe she would just show up. Andrea would later reveal to the Atlanta Constitution that the police didn't seem to take Jennifer's missing person's report seriously. And it was probably because of her age. They thought maybe she just forgot to check in with her friends. 
And also, it's a beach town. It's summertime. Jennifer was only 21 years old, and it's unclear what her friends reported. But if they said, hey, we left her with a handsome seal, the cops were probably for sure not concerned about Jennifer. But they should have been. Because unbeknownst to everyone, when Jennifer's friends reported her missing, she was already dead. Because the police would not start looking for Jennifer Evans, her friends were forced to search for her for almost a full day. And remember, it's 1995. This was not the time of cell phones and internet. Later that night, when they still hadn't heard from Jennifer, the ladies returned to the police station And this time, they were taken a little more seriously. Andrea and Michelle also had to make a heartbreaking call back to Jennifer's parents. How do you make that call? Al and Dolores were devastated. Not knowing what they could do all the way from Georgia, they drove all through the night to Virginia to aid in the search for their only child. The Evans' first stop when they arrived in town was to the police station to make a formal missing persons complaint. At this point, six officers were assigned to the case. And later, the FBI would also get involved. The Evans, though, they were not sparing any expense to find their missing daughter. They immediately hired a private investigator. They nagged a former FBI agent turned PI. So they were in good hands. I cannot tell you enough the importance of a private investigator right off the bat. When you need answers, PIs are the way to go. While searching for their daughter, the Evans started putting up flyers, contacting local news and making appearances. Al, Jennifer's dad, he knew in his gut that this was bad. His daughter, if she was still alive, needed help. Within days of Jennifer's disappearance, Andrea and Michelle met with a sketch artist to come up with a composite sketch of this dusty guy. The sketch was released to the media. Meanwhile, investigators went up to the barracks to chat with any Navy SEALs who had been in the area when Jennifer went missing. The investigators eventually caught up with a Navy SEAL candidate called Dusty Turner, Dustin Turner, to be exact. Dusty said he had actually been at the bayou on the 18th, but after the bar closed, he claimed he drove back to the barracks with his buddy, Billy Brown, and they did not have anyone else with them. Investigators were like, okay, but tell us about any women that you may have spoken to at the bar. At that point, Dusty was like, well, while I was at the bayou, we met two women. I can't remember their names. One was really tall and the other one was kind of short. And one of those two women had been at the bar with two other friends. Investigators were interested. They were like, "Okay, tell us more about the woman you spoke to who was there with two friends. Dusty was like, "Okay, well, me and that woman spoke for a while. And when her friends came back for her, that's the last time I saw her. In actuality, he said he and Brown left while the woman was still waiting for her friends. Investigators were like, are you sure you don't remember this woman's name? And Dusty was like, no, I really don't. During the conversation with investigators, Dusty did remember, however, that the woman wrote her name and number on a napkin. And he told the investigators that he thought he still had that napkin back at the barracks. So the investigators were like, great, we'll walk you back to your barracks and you can get it for us. When investigators got the napkin, the name was clear as day. Jennifer. Bingo. So they knew they were onto something. Whether this Dusty character had something to do with Jennifer's disappearance or not, they at least knew that he was the man who had Jennifer's attention the entire night before she vanished. So again, investigators asked Dusty, can you tell us about the night you met Jennifer? This time, Dusty gave a little bit more information. 
He said at some point when he was talking to Jennifer, he thought she might want to leave with him. So because he was Brown's ride, his friend, he had to get Brown an alternative ride. Yep, it's 1995 and Uber was still not a thing. I guess there were still cabs back then, but a two hour cab ride sounds a little bit expensive. Anyway, Brown's ex-girlfriend was also at the bar. So Dusty asked her, her name is Kristen and she becomes very important to the story in a little bit. But anyway, the thing was that Brown was adamant that he didn't want to ride from his ex-girlfriend, Kristen. So Dusty told investigators that that was that and Dusty's plans to leave alone with Jennifer were foiled and they went their separate ways. Investigators asked Dusty how much he and Brown had to drink that night. And he was like, oh, we didn't drink at all. Hmm, okay. Investigators asked Dusty what he and Brown did the day after the bayou. It was a Monday. Dusty claimed that they woke up at 9 a.m., went to sign a lease for an off-base apartment, then returned back to base. Once investigators got what they needed, they continued on to the next person on their list, Billy Brown. The thing was that after they interviewed Dusty, he just seemed so upstanding, so honest. Interviewing Brown would seem to be just a formality. When investigators brought Brown in for questioning, his story fit neatly with Dusty's. There were no inconsistencies. Everything just fell nicely into place. And plus, the two men were Navy SEAL candidates and they were about to graduate and become full-fledged SEALs. After chatting with Dusty and Brown, the investigators were no closer to finding Jennifer Evans. That is, until Kristen, Brown's ex-girlfriend, read the newspaper on June 22nd. That paper included coverage of Jennifer Evans' missing persons case, complete with a composite sketch of the man authorities were trying to find. Kristen thought the man looked a lot like Dusty. She had no idea that cops had already spoken to him. So anyway, Kristen contacted authorities and when she told them that the men had been drinking, Kristen opened this case wide open. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, 
for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. By June 22nd, four days since Jennifer Evans had been missing, there was a $25,000 reward for information leading to Jennifer. Authorities had just interviewed Kristen, who told them that she was at the bayou on the 18th and that she had seen Jennifer. She also told them that Dusty and Brown were, in fact, drinking that night. Which, by the way, you didn't know this, but Dusty was underage. He was only 20 years old at the time. So legally, he shouldn't have been drinking. Kristen said that Brown was also drinking and as per usual, he got wasted. Kristen recalled seeing Dusty leaving the bar with Jennifer at about 1.35 a.m. Kristen's entire statement contradicted what Dusty and Brown had told them. So investigators returned for a reattack. When approached a second time, the men stood their ground and offered to take a lie detector test. Four days later, on June 27th, the men were picked up and taken to the FBI headquarters in Richmond, Virginia for a third, more formal re-interview. They were there to take those polygraph tests. While Brown waited to take his polygraph, he was calm, cool, and collected. He knew he had nothing to hide. The polygrapher described Brown as, quote, Mr. Cool, end quote. And well, I'm sure you want to know, but all of Brown's responses regarding Jennifer's disappearance showed signs of deception. After seeing this, they wanted to ask questions about murder but Brown did not allow it. When an investigator entered the room to discuss Jennifer's disappearance further, Brown refused to answer. And then when he was left alone in the room, he, no kidding, fell asleep. When it was Turner's turn, he was pensive. During the polygraph, when asked about Jennifer's disappearance, his responses also showed signs of deception. This time, when asked if they could talk about Jennifer, Dusty agreed to speak. During this first go-around after the polygraph, Dusty reiterated almost the same story as before, except that at the end, when he and Jennifer split, Dusty remembered that Jennifer was talking to two other random men. Investigators took turns interviewing Dusty, and every time he changed his story, it was almost as if he was having a hard time keeping up with the lie that he said prior, and maybe he was lost. Eventually, an investigator tried reasoning with Dusty. He said, listen, bro, we just want to bring Jennifer back to her family. She's an only child and her parents need to know the truth. As he said this, tears filled Dusty's eyes. Dusty broke. He said he would tell them whatever they needed to know. But first, he wanted to talk to his chief warrant officer. Chief Warrant Officer O'Connick entered the room. He was the one who took the trip down to the FBI HQ with the men. And while he was there, Dusty confessed to O'Connick. O'Connick simply said, be honest and quote, if you do, things will be all right, end quote. When investigators came back in, Dusty agreed to take them to Jennifer's body. Before they left, they asked, did you kill Jennifer? Dusty responded, no, but I was there when it happened. Dustin Allen Turner was born on February 7, 1975, to Linda and Arch Turner. Dusty had one older brother, Matt. His parents divorced and he stayed with his mom. Dusty's mom remarried and he had two half-brothers through this marriage. So it was an all-boy family. When Dusty was a kid, he participated in Boy Scouts and he was a true scout. He loved camping, he loved hunting, he loved fishing. It's not surprising to learn then that he reached the prestigious rank of Eagle Scout. 
Dusty was an all-American boy, playing and succeeding at all the sports, cross-country, baseball, basketball, football, and swimming. Dusty kind of knew the military was his calling. Heck, nearly all the men in his family had done it, so why not him? Dusty enlisted in the Navy as soon as he could, and two weeks out of high school, he made his way to Orlando, Florida for boot camp. He went to A school where he was a combat photographer as his specialty, which is in the public affairs realm. Photography must not have been that exciting for him, however, because months later, at just 18 and a half years old, Dusty applied to be a Navy SEAL recruit. He applied and got in. Dusty was one of 115 recruits. That number might sound high, but the attrition rate is also high. It was at Navy SEAL training where Dusty met Brown. Billy Joe Brown Jr. was born on June 3, 1972. Brown was raised mostly by his mom, and by the time he was 17 years old, Brown tied the knot with a 14-year-old girl named Dawn. This was back in 1989. Together, they had a son who they named Billy as well. Brown wasn't a very good husband, though. In 1990, he attacked his 15-year-old wife because he thought she was cheating on him. When she fled to a nearby neighbor's house, Brown followed suit. When police arrived and Dawn opened the door, Brown, fully knowing the police were watching, grabbed Dawn by the hair and arm and dragged her across the street to their apartment, all the while police tried to stop him. The thing about Brown is that he had what appeared to be superhuman strength, and we will see this again later. It took a whopping three police officers to subdue the man. For this incident, Brown was charged with domestic violence, resisting arrest, and other charges. But Brown had not yet hit the age of majority, which is 18, so the record was sealed. Brown didn't graduate from high school, but he did go on to get his GED in 1991. Brown was working in a factory and going to night college, and that was when Brown decided to follow his dream to join the military. He chose the Coast Guard, but his life as a Coastie was short-lived when he assaulted a superior officer and was given the boot. In February of 1993, the Navy must not have cared because they opened their arms to Billy Brown and he enlisted. He would later be accepted into the Navy SEALs training program. It should be noted that by 1995, Brown and Don were separated. So it was during BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition SEAL training, that Brown and Dusty got to know each other better. They were both injured during their training and they spent time together in rehab. Dusty suffered a collapsed lung and had stress fractures in both legs. Brown suffered a femoral stress fracture. Once they both recovered, they were recycled and began the new training session together. And as luck would have it, they were swim buddies. Recruits are never allowed to swim alone, apparently. And well, the pair grew extremely close. On December 16, 1994, Brown and Dusty had accomplished quite a feat when they both graduated from Bud's training. They went on to complete airborne school and were both assigned to Team 4 at Little Creek and Virginia. When Dusty arrived, he was three days shy of his 20th birthday. He was the youngest SEAL team recruit in the Navy at the time. At this point, it's February 1995, but the men are not yet full-fledged Navy SEALs. They have to complete SEAL tactical training and a six-month probationary period before they would get the honor of being called a SEAL. The two men were a part of Echo Platoon, and when they arrived, they began training for an upcoming mission in Panama, which was scheduled for August 1995. As teammates, Dusty and Brown were kind of opposites. Dusty was always going above and beyond, trying to get extra certificates to be the best. 
Brown, not so much. He was more the drinking type. And when he drank, boy, did he like to fight. You looked at this kid sideways and you would catch his hands. Now, a little bit about SEAL training, as reported in the documentary Target of Opportunity, which you can rent on Amazon. It says that recruits train for roughly 20 hours a day. 20 hours. That means they are doing this day in and day out with hardly any sleep. It does appear that they do get weekends off occasionally, maybe. But Brown, well, he would not only partake in his drinking habit on weekends, but even during the few short hours during weekdays when he was not working. Brown also participated in the illegal consumption of weed and steroid use. But the man couldn't be stopped. This brings us to Father's Day, Sunday, June 18th, 1995. Brown spent all day drinking. In his barracks room, he had six beers, eight to 10 shots of Jim Beam. Yes, you heard me correctly. And after a day of day drinking, Brown and Dusty decided to head over to their favorite spot, the bayou. Dusty drove and on the way, Brown consumed six more beers. Y'all, remember that part when these guys told the investigators they hadn't drank at all? Oh boy. Once they got to the bar at about 10.30 p.m., Brown had another eight to 10 more beers. On top of that, he had eight to 10 shots and 12 mixed drinks. Okay, who, who wrote this? Because this does not even seem humanly possible. Well, anyway, that's what the investigation would reveal. Well, once Dusty started talking after the polygraph test, this is what he told investigators about that night. That night at the bayou, they were not the only sailors. Before he got to talking to Jennifer, he and Brown spent most of their time chatting with other Navy folks. They were all out celebrating their upcoming Navy SEAL graduation. Then, right after midnight, Dusty and Jennifer met each other and hit it off. He found her attractive and bubbly. Once he convinced her to stay with him, he tried to get a ride for Brown because he didn't want to leave him hanging. Dusty asked Kristen, remember Brown's ex-girlfriend, if she could take him back to the barracks, and she agreed. But Brown said no, he didn't want to go with her. Dusty and Jennifer headed out to Dusty's car. He originally wanted to drive her down to the beach, but with only 15 minutes until her friends were set to return, he figured there was no way. So they just sat in the car talking. Dusty told investigators that as he was talking to Jennifer, Dusty saw Brown approaching the car. Dusty knew Brown was drunk and stupid, so he told Jennifer to not believe a word the man said. Brown then climbed into the back seat right behind Jennifer and suddenly began to curse and be a complete a-hole, talking crap about his ex-girlfriend and Dusty. Dusty would later tell investigators that if he had to guess, he would say that Brown was upset that Dusty ditched him most of the night to talk to Jennifer and that Brown didn't appreciate Dusty trying to find him on an alternative ride back to the barracks. As Brown went on his rant, he then turned his anger towards Jennifer, who was still in the front passenger seat. Brown cursed at her and then asked her if she was a virgin and if she ever had sex with a frogman. For anyone unfamiliar with the meaning of frogman, it's a Navy term that goes back to World War II where heroic Navy SEALs were called frogmen. The Navy special warfare community pays homage by using the nickname today. So once Brown starts cursing at her, Jennifer was clearly shocked. So Dusty told Brown to chill the hell out. Brown then touched Jennifer from the back seat. It's unclear if it was her shoulder or her hair or whatever, 
but Jennifer quickly slapped Brown's hand away. That's when Brown placed Jennifer in a chokehold and locked his arms. Initially, Dusty was in disbelief. Jennifer's arms went limp by her side. As Dusty tried to pry Brown's arms from off of Jennifer, but Brown was much too strong. Brown held Jennifer for about a minute and then he relaxed his arms, releasing a now fully limp Jennifer. Dusty tried to check for signs of life, but there were none. He would later admit to investigators that Jennifer didn't stand a chance against Brown. Brown moved so quickly that Jennifer didn't even get a chance to bring her arms and hands up to attempt to get Brown off, like in self-defense. Within seconds of checking for signs of life, Brown yelled at Dusty to drive. That's when Dusty reverted into his military mentality and he did as he was told. He drove. As Dusty drove, not really sure where he was going, Brown reclined the front passenger seat and tried to reach under Jennifer's shorts. Dusty yelled at Brown to stop and he did. That's when he fell asleep. Dusty drove with a sleeping drunk and a dead woman he had just met until he found a good dumping spot. Dusty woke Brown up and together they removed Jennifer's body from the car. Dusty left Brown with Jennifer's body as he returned to the car to try to find a digging tool. And when he returned, he found Brown on top of Jennifer's body. Dusty pulled Brown off and Brown replied, quote, it doesn't matter because I couldn't get a heart on anyway, end quote. Ew, that guy is so gross. Without anything to dig, they decided to just cover Jennifer's body with sticks and leaves. Once they felt she was concealed enough, they left. Brown slept for most of the return drive, but eventually woke up when he got hungry and Dusty got him something to eat. The following morning, after not sleeping much, they did in fact sign a lease for a place off base together. It was after this that Brown told Dusty, quote, I know what I did was stupid and I'm sorry. I know it was stupid, but we've got to stick together now. We're both in this now. We've got to stick together, end quote. Wow, just wow. Starting a fight in a bar is stupid. Killing a human is not stupid. It's murder. When investigators asked Dusty why he lied to them on so many occasions, he said he felt he had no choice. He was so far into it that he just felt like he couldn't go back. I bet there was also something there about brotherhood and surviving so much other stuff with the guy, you know? After Dusty told his part, he drew a picture of where they could find Jennifer's body. They would, in fact, eventually go to the location and find Jennifer. She was located at the Newport News Park. And of course, investigators had to corroborate Dusty's story. So they went to speak to Billy Brown. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. 
And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. When investigators spoke to Billy Brown, they were like, listen, dude, the jig is up. Your friend told us that you put Jennifer in a chokehold and killed her. And Brown was like, wait, what? Who, me? You want the truth? Okay, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is this. And this is what Brown says. I walked up to the car and when I got there, Jennifer was passed out in the back seat because Dusty was the one who had choked her out. Brown then jumped in the car and they drove down the street where they parked and started to undress and touch Jennifer. That's when she woke up screaming and then Dusty was the one who started choking her. Dusty eventually released her, but when she started choking up blood, Dusty continued to strangle her while Brown held down her arms and legs. When Jennifer stopped flailing, they let her go and realized, oh, she's dead. They then drove off with her body in the car and they were panicking. Brown, the sick SOB, then admitted to fondling Jennifer's body and said, quote, yeah, I guess that's pretty sick, end quote. Yeah, I would say so. The rest of Brown's story matches up with Dusty's. They left her and covered her with sticks and leaves. He slept, he got food, etc., etc. Investigators were now stunned. Who killed Jennifer? They now had her body, so clearly it was one of these two guys, but were either of them telling the truth? Was the truth somewhere in between? But then, not even an hour after his initial statement, Brown told investigators, okay, okay, I may have lied a little, and now I want to tell you the truth. Investigators, probably realizing they were never going to get the whole truth, they were still all ears. And this is what Brown said. Earlier in the night, Dusty told Kristen, his ex-girlfriend, that he was going to hook up with Jennifer. So he needed her to give Brown a ride. Brown didn't want a ride from his ex-girlfriend because he thought that they would end up having sex and he was in a relationship and didn't want to ruin it. When Brown walked out to the car, he saw two heads in the back seat. And then Dusty jumped out and said, quote, I think I effing killed her, end quote. When Brown looked into the back seat, he saw Jennifer lying down with blood coming out of her nose. Dusty demanded that Brown get in the car and they drove off. Before they drove off, though, Dusty threw Jennifer off the back seat and shoved her body into the floorboard. As he drove off, Dusty allegedly declared, I know what we'll do. We'll take her to the beach, rape her, throw her in the water, and the cops will think she drowned. Brown claimed that he had drank so much he was in and out of consciousness. He did remember the car stopping and them dumping Jennifer's body. Nothing else was said until two days later when Dusty gave him the play-by-play. Dusty told Brown that they were in the car and Dusty was trying to have sex with Jennifer when all of a sudden she stopped him. That's when Dusty, quote, put his forearm on her throat and pushed back. Next thing he knew, Jennifer started spitting up blood and foam, end quote. So that was all that Billy had to say. And that was a whole lot. And that was two versions of events, I guess. It appears that authorities took a combination of Dusty's statement and Brown's statement to pursue charges against both men. 
When Jennifer's body was found, she was badly decomposed. Her clothing appeared to have been manipulated. Her vest was pulled back and her bra was pushed up and her breasts were exposed. Her shorts and underwear had been pulled down and were only hanging on one leg. At autopsy, Jennifer's cause of death could not be determined due to decomposition. Her neck was not broken, but manual strangulation could not be ruled out. Brown and Dusty were arrested and both men were charged with murder, abduction, and intent to defile with an adamant object, meaning Brown's hand. Brown was additionally charged with attempted rape. Not surprisingly, finding Jennifer's body was a shock to the community. Her passing was felt in Virginia, but also all the way back in Georgia at her university, where only a year and a half earlier, another student had vanished and had not yet been found. But equally shocked was the Navy community and the Navy SEAL community. Everyone who knew Dusty and Brown were sure that there was a misunderstanding. This type of action, while vile and unacceptable, was expected of Brown. But Dusty, he was a goody two-shoes. People were sure he had nothing to do with Jennifer's death. And prosecutors appeared to believe that Brown was the culprit and Dusty was the -the after-the-fact accomplice. But instead of downgrading the charges, the prosecution decided to put it into the jury's hands. Brown and Dusty faced two separate trials. Brown's trial went first and began in May of 1999. At Brown's trial, he was introduced as basically the accomplice. He got to the car and Jennifer was passed out. Brown and Dusty attempted to sexually violate Jennifer and when she woke up, Dusty killed her while Brown held her down. The defense, on the other hand, argued that Dusty killed Jennifer and that she was already dead by the time that Brown got to the car. With a defense like that, Brown took the stand in his own defense. And that's when he told his final version of events that he told investigators. The jury, however, didn't buy it. And with that, he was convicted of all charges and sentenced to 42 years for murder, 25 years for abduction, and five years for attempted rape, all to be served consecutively which means back-to-back and equals 72 years. All of Brown's appeals have been denied. Dusty Turner's trial began in August of 1999. The prosecution presented a case where Dusty and Brown wanted to have a threesome with Jennifer and got her to go to the car. But when she refused to participate in the threesome, the men abducted her and killed her elsewhere. The threesome theory was an interesting one. But they did bring in another sailor named Julio who testified that he was at the bayou on the night in question. And after last call for alcohol, he turned to Dusty and asked him what his plans were for the evening. Dusty told Julio that he and Brown were going to have a threesome with Jennifer. Right then, when they were talking, Jennifer walked in on the conversation and gave a thumbs up and they all smiled. Dusty's defense was that he was an accessory after the fact. Sticking to Dusty's initial statement after speaking to his chief warrant officer after the polygraph test. Dusty also took the stand in his own defense and he said while he did have a threesome with Brown in the past, not on this night, he never told Julio that he was going to have a threesome that night. On the stand, Dusty said he wasn't trying to have sex with Jennifer that night because he knew she wasn't that type of girl. When asked why he didn't come clean right away, Dusty testified it was because of his military oath. He was a SEAL, trained to protect his swim buddy. Never leave a man behind. He felt that by riding him out, he'd be leaving him in the dust. Dusty was convicted of abduction and murder. The crazy part and most upsetting part for me is that after the trial, 
the jury foreman, basically the juror who takes on the role of taking notes, reading them, etc. The jury foreman said that most of the jurors felt that Dusty was innocent of murder, but they for sure knew he helped to cover it up. But because they didn't want him to get away scotch-free, they convicted him of murder. I remember a few years ago when I watched the documentary Target of Opportunity, I was floored that this happened. Dusty, it turns out, got a stiffer sentence than Brown. He received 37 years for abduction and 45 years for murder to run back to back. That's 82 years. Two years after Jennifer's death, her parents brought a suit against Brown, Dusty, and the government. They were seeking $5 million in compensatory damages and $10 million in punitive damages. For naming the government in their suit, Jennifer's parents believed that they were responsible because the men were part of the Navy SEAL training program. And but for that training, they would not have been trained to kill. They also claimed the government was negligent when they allowed Brown to enlist, even with his violent past. There were a lot of other allegations that I won't get into, but just know that the suit was ultimately dismissed. And y'all, if you thought this story was over, it's not. It is merely getting started. In 1999, four years after Jennifer's murder, Billy Brown gave his life to Christ. After converting, he told his attorney and his mother the truth. For all those years, he had been living a lie. He went on to tell of what really happened. It was virtually identical to what Dusty Turner had been saying all along. Brown stated that he was very, very drunk. No kidding. He remembered climbing into the back seat and cussing, and then suddenly he placed Jennifer in a chokehold until she died. He vaguely remembered Dusty trying to pry his arms off of Jennifer, but he didn't budge. Once Brown realized he killed Jennifer, he instructed Dusty to drive. Brown did recall removing Jennifer's vest and trying to have sex with her when they were at the dump site. In 2002, Dusty heard from another inmate that Brown was now offering Dusty's version of events as the truth, meaning Brown was telling people that he was the one who actually killed Jennifer. Dusty immediately called his attorney. He called his mom. Clearly, this was a good reason to appeal or at least ask for a new trial, a mistrial, something, right? Dusty's attorney needed to hear from Brown himself. So that same year, Shay Cook, the attorney, visited Brown in prison and recorded the conversation. And sure enough, Brown was saying he killed Jennifer and Dusty had no idea he was going to do that. All Dusty did was help him hide the body and lie. Brown told Shay Cook that he lied on Dusty because Dusty betrayed him. He betrayed the brotherly trust they had by confessing and showing investigators where they could find Jennifer's body. In short, Brown thought, quote, Dusty snitched, screw him, end quote. Oh my word. If your blood is boiling, just wait. Brown agreed to sign an affidavit with this information, and that's not the upsetting part. I'll get to it. So with all this, Dusty filed a writ of actual innocence with this new evidence. The state filed a motion to dismiss, but it was denied and the appeal was remanded to the circuit court for review. In May of 2008, 13 years after Jennifer's death, the circuit court had an evidentiary hearing to take in this new evidence. Brown testified at the hearing. 
While many people thought that maybe Brown was now changing his tune because he figured only one of them should be in jail and not both of them, well, Brown testified on the stand that in prison he found God and he had to come clean. He said, quote, I am here to glorify Jesus Christ by telling the truth. If it helps Dusty, that's great, end quote. And he was like really nonchalant about it. Like he doesn't care what happens to Dusty. He just wants to tell the truth, apparently. So after this hearing, the court ruled that Brown testified truthfully and that back in 1998 during the initial trial, but for Brown's statement against his buddy, there was no scientific or forensic evidence against Dusty, stating that he was the one who actually killed Jennifer. The Court of Appeals reviewed the lower court's findings and granted Dusty's request for a writ of actual innocence. The Court of Appeals basically said, the most this Dusty guy is guilty of is being an accessory after the fact, which is a misdemeanor. And with that, they sent it back down for correction. But listen, the state of Virginia was pissed. In the meantime, Jennifer's parents heard the news and they were also upset. They felt that the jury got it right the first time. Virginia asked for a rehearing, like a no kidding oral argument in front of the judges to reconsider this writ. And on June 29th, 2010, even though Dusty had been preparing to leave prison and it was now 15 years after Jennifer's murder, after the rehearing, the Court of Appeals dismissed Dusty's petition of writ of actual innocence. The court agreed that they were bound by the circuit court's credibility finding, but they said that even though Brown appeared to be telling the truth and probably was, it wasn't the end-all be-all of the case. They found that even if Brown had testified as such back in 1998, the jury could have still found Dusty guilty of abduction by deception. Basically, taking a look back at the entire court record, the jury could have still said, nah, Dusty is guilty. Listen, I could go into it here, but the court's ruling is really confusing and kind of upsetting because it really is a stretch. Dusty appealed to the Virginia Supreme Court, but they upheld the Court of Appeals decision. Dusty's only avenue of early release is via a governor grant of clemency. In 2014, Brown sent Dusty a letter in prison asking for forgiveness, but he said forgiveness is not for him, meaning Brown. The forgiveness would be for Dusty's own sake. But forgiveness is hard for Dusty to give. He's not the only one affected by his conviction. For the last decade and now decades, his family has been entangled in getting Dusty out of prison. They have dedicated an entire website to Dusty called freedusty.org. Most of my resources have come from that website as well as a documentary. The thing about Dusty is that while depressing as it may seem, being confined to a tiny room, Dusty has been an upstanding inmate, implementing many successful programs to help inmates improve their lives. He started a dog training program where inmates train dogs, and he started an offender rehab program. He also obtained a victim advocacy certificate. He has played sports, refereed sports, and is even a teacher's aide. He is currently in the Greenville Correctional Center in Garrett, Virginia. He is set for release in 2067 when he is going to be in his 90s. According to the FreeDusty.org website run by Dusty and his family, it is said that Dusty was informed that his clemency petition was denied by four governors. His next clemency hearing can be heard in two years. It's unclear when this was written, so I don't know when those two years would be. 
It continues, however, that Dusty's next parole hearing is in 2023. Again, they haven't updated it since November, so I don't know if it already happened. Jennifer Evans is forever missed by her family and remembered by her university for her loving compassion. There is a yearly scholarship award in Jennifer's honor. Thank you so much, True Crime Army, for tuning in to Military Murder. Your love and support means the world to me. If you're interested in more true crime stories beyond what you can hear on the public feed, feel free to join me on Patreon, where you can hear at least 35 new stories. And of course, by joining the Patreon or Apple Premium, you are supporting this show. This episode was researched by Haley Gray. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This month's executive producers via Patreon are Jen, Myrtle, Tina, Alicia, Falcon 13, and Nicole. Our newest associate producers via Patreon are Nell, Daniela, Amanda, and Jenna. Our newest assistant producers also via Patreon are Carla, Anne, and Chanel. The music was created by TyUps. If you're interested in supporting the show, visit patreon.com slash militarymurder. By becoming a patron, you can listen either on the Patreon app or Apple or Spotify. All my Apple podcast listeners can support the show by subscribing to the premium content on Apple Podcasts. Love you. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.